Welcome to our Journal Club podcast. As always, we are joined by Professor Peter Cameron and consultant Jubankai Apui, both from the Alfred Hospital. My name is Danny Marhaba. I am your host. Today's papers are two well-conducted papers. The first is the exact trial, which is the effect of lower versus higher oxygenation saturation targets on survival to hospital discharge among patients resuscitated after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The second trial we will discuss is the uh, DOSE-VF trial, which is the defibrillation strategies for refractory ventricular fibrillation. Paper 1. The effect of lower versus higher oxygen saturation targets on survival to hospital discharge. The population for this trial was patients with the return of uh, spontaneous circulation out of hospital cardiac arrest um, with a presumed cardiac cause. The intervention was oxygen initially reduced to four liters per minute to achieve saturations, peripheral saturations of 90 to 94%. And the comparator was higher flow to achieve saturations 98 to 100%. The primary outcome was survival to hospital discharge with an array of secondary outcomes, including rearrest, hypoxia, and myocardial injury. This was a prospective, controlled, randomized trial conducted in uh, two Australian states, and it was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The subjects were selected for, were identified for inclusion by paramedics. Those inclusion criteria were age greater than 18 with return of spontaneous circulation. The question of were there differences between the study and the target population, there were minor changes, but largely the two populations were quite similar. The intervention and the comparators were subjected to uh, peripheral oxygen saturation measurements at randomization, as well as on ED arrival. They all received an ABG on arrival to ED as well. So the primary outcome, what were the results? We have a survival of 47% for patients in the standard care arm, which is targeting a high oxygen saturation, and a survival of 38% with patients who were targeted the lower oxygen saturation margins, 19 to 94%. The sensitivity analysis of eligible patients was not statistically significant in this case, but we'll talk about the breakdown. Of those results. There were uh, statistically significant positive secondary outcomes, including episodes of hypoxia prior to ICU with 16.1 patients in the standard care arm becoming hypoxic at some stage, whereas 31% in the lower oxygen saturation arm became hypoxic at some stage. The authors conclude that uh, among patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest secondary to cardiac cause with targeting of lower SATs, this did not significantly improve survival to hospital discharge. So our first question goes to Professor Peter Cameron, and it involves the primary outcome, survival to discharge. Uh, we have a p-value of 0.05, but we have confidence intervals that accurately portray this primary outcome. What are your thoughts about this primary outcome? Yeah, well, the primary outcome is fairly straightforward, survival to discharge, but the what is significant, I guess, is the question. And interestingly, the journal insists on rounding up to 0.05 when, in fact, it is less than 0.05. It was 
6.49 something. And I guess it does raise the question of why, you know, you have an arbitrary number of 0.05. So in pure statistical terms, it was significant at a 0.05 level. Now, obviously, you know, that's a very arbitrary number. And 0.05 is, you know, not quite as good as 0.01. You know, you can, you know, you can go around in circles. But at the end of the day, there was a significant signal that this might represent a reality. The, the second part about it is that there's sort of some biological or pathological plausibility about that difference between the two groups. And that is that when you look at the secondary outcomes of uh, hypoxia, there was, you know, definitely a difference between the two groups, which is sort of, you know, uh, common sense. If you give less oxygen, you're more likely to have hypoxia. But to uh, measurable hypoxia seemed to be significantly different. And and I guess in an unstable patient who gets significant hypoxia, that can't be a good thing. And to me, that's what that what this trial demonstrated that, you know, when you've got a patient just after uh, resuscitation who becomes hypoxic, there's a real risk that you might actually kill them. Now, this trial doesn't, I don't think it, you know, a single trial, you can say, uh, you know, with borderline significance, you can say it absolutely proves it. But it certainly, in my mind, you know, as a clinician, I, I find it difficult to ignore. And that brings us to our second question to Dr. JK. What was your practice before this trial and what is your practice after this trial in terms of oxygen targets? I think this is a really nice research done, uh, really trying to look into the uh, sort of a hypoxia versus hypoxia. We know that hypoxia is bad, but hypoxia is probably even worse. And uh, it's really, I think, before um, you know, reading this paper, you you kind of know that any patients comes in with acute coronary syndrome, whether it's uh, ST elevations, myocardial infarctions, or unstable angina, you don't blast them with oxygens anymore because we know that that produces a lot of oxygens um, and damages and things like that. But really dealing with these cardiac arrest patients, they are really this paper really illustrate that they're quite a different group of patients we're dealing with. These are patients are very acidotic. We're talking about pH of low 7s or even high 6.9s. Their oxygen saturation curve will be very different looking compared to someone who's awake and complaining of chest pain uh, with a small troponin rise. So I think, I think with reading this paper, it, it does tell me that, you know, uh, patient comes in cardiac arrest, the curve is different. One of the things it does make me think about is whether the oxygen saturations monitor uh, would be accurately reflecting their PO2. Because, you know, oxygen saturations of 90% in a patient with some chest pain with normal pH would probably be different from someone with pH of 6.9 and a saturation number of 90%. The PO2 might be different. Which brings me to the question whether this paper would have been a bit more accurate if we do it with a PO2 value rather than oxygen saturation. Obviously, it's a lot harder to measure having to get an ABG for every patient that way. But um, I wonder what would Peter think having a PO2 monitor instead of oxygen saturation monitoring? I agree. I think the PO2 would be more valuable, but in practice, especially in pre-hospital, that's very tricky. It's interesting, you know, when we were trying to design this trial, many were advocating for an even lower limit, you know, especially after the AVOID trial and so forth, which suggested that, you know, skimming along the sort of the bottom end of the curve might be better for patients. So what what we chose was actually a fairly conservative 
uh, lower limit, if you like. And the fact that even then we've got this danger signal, I think, to me, is quite significant. And and certainly for me, it would reinforce my desire for for unstable patients in transport, whether it's to CT or back or from pre-hospital to hospital, just taking oxygenation out of the equation and providing 100% or as high an FiO2 as I can. Just to make the point, though, that once the patient is sort of stable and you know, connected to the ventilator and in ICU and everything's fine, then I think that is a whole different matter as to how you titrate the oxygen. But I think in that first half hour, hour or so after a cardiac arrest, there are many bad things that can happen. And it's much harder to control uh, any of the physiological parameters within a tight range. Even NED, your manuscript doesn't 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 exclude NED good critical care. Once we have some stability, weaning down the FiO two slowly to target you know Sats of ninety six to one hundred or, or ninety six to ninety eight or whatever. Yep. Oh yeah, the other point I wanted to make, just maybe uh, Peter could help answer. What's um, the, the the trial was really sort of stopped recruiting uh, during the COVID pandemic and. Um, I was just wondering if you sort of let it run, would it actually get stopped because of adverse events instead of um, the numbers? We did have a DSMB uh, looking at the numbers. Normally what you do is, you know, you don't want to stop a trial early and you allow a fair degree of, uh, how can I put it? Because during a trial, the outcomes will vary quite a lot. And you, you often go, if you were to do it, patient by patient, you would often go over the 0.05 limit during a trial. So usually you set the limits at 0.01 rather than 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 0.05. So this was sort of, you know, barely significant. It, it may be that if we'd done an interim analysis, the DSMB would have suggested we do a further interim analysis. But there's many trials that have been stopped early and then everyone said, well, it wasn't really powered to look at the primary outcome or whatever. So we try to avoid that as much as possible. And so the decision to stop a trial early, you often find that you require a little bit more certainty. Is that right? Is that what, am I understanding that? Yeah, because when you do multiple, like it decreases the power of a study, mm. uh, the more you look at it. And, and so you really want to be pretty certain that there's a danger signal there before you stop it because otherwise it's a you know it's it's unethical from the point of view of uh you know enrolling people in a trial that doesn't reach its conclusion mm. that's fair enough my next question um is around the challenges to recruit um, as is often the case, uh, you guys had some real challenges in, in 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 gaining the numbers, whether it was covid related or elsewhere did do you have any sort of advice or strategies or thoughts on on would you do any of 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 the methodology differently or no i think i think we actually recruited quite well in victoria up to the covid mm. period the problem was our interstate collaborations were relying on uh, western australia which had some ethics and governance issues with pre-hospital uh, consent. They, they changed the legislation, which made it difficult to recruit non-consenting patients into trials, which obviously all these types of studies are. And there were some logistics issues in South Australia. So we sort of recruited effectively sort of 
half the number that we wanted to. And we were also hoping that one or two other states might jump on board. But again, there were difficulties with the ethics and governance uh, side of it. But we sort of didn't do too badly with within the Victorian group. I saw that there was a section uh, uh, where in the manuscript where you all discussed uh, the ethics requirements uh, in South Australia and the ethics requirements in Victoria. And I noted that they were somewhat different in terms of the consent requirements. It's an international issue and it varies, you know, in the European Union, US, very different in different places. And then around Australia, we even have differences, which does seem bizarre, but unfortunately, you know, it's just one of those barriers to good uh, resuscitation trials. I think for me, at least, what I can say is my practice is reinforced a little bit. Um, and I and I'm I think I'm happy to have this manuscript give that guidance. Yeah, I think it's useful. You know, obviously other people thought that also, but I think it's useful. It, it gives us a little bit of guidance with where to go, you know, like not over, as JK said, not not allowing hyperoxia, but at the same time avoiding hypoxia. And and I think that involves using more liberal oxygen use in that unstable period post-resuscitation. Mm. Any further thoughts, JK, before we move on to the uh, the next trial? Yeah, I, I, I thought this is really just, again, to highlight that it's such an important paper. Not a lot of emergency physicians love research, but this is the one that will really, you know, give you a second thought and awareness to know that this is something that we can actually cause harm by following and not just separating these groups from from uh, the other groups that we're dealing with. Mm. I, uh, what comes to mind to me is the question, as I'm going to CT multiple times after we've received the patient, if we want to do some type of CT brain or something, and I look at the SATs, I see them 100, and I see we're giving 100% oxygen, and they've only been here for 15 minutes, and I think, okay, am I going to down titrate it now? And on multiple occasions, I've had this thought process of maybe, no, I'll down titrate this oxygen once we're back from CT. And I think, though it's not directly applicable, this helps inform these types of decisions in my mind. Yes, certainly. Um, I mean, I mean, transport uh, comes with many different other challenges of dislodgements. Because any transient loss of oxygen just gives you that, that loss of um, a, a buffer and a backup to, to um, uh, prevent hypoxia. Paper 2. Our next paper is called Defibrillation Strategies for Refractory Ventricular Fibrillation, the DOSE VF trial. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Sheldon Cheskies and multiple co-authors. The population targeted is patients greater than 18 years with an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and refractory VT or pulseless VT. The exposure was double sequential external defibrillation as well as vector change defibrillation. This was a three-group cluster randomized controlled trial in six pre-hospital groups in Ontario, Canada. The comparator was standard care, and the outcome was survival to hospital discharge. The sample size targeted was 930 patients overall, and the subjects were selected with a host of inclusion and exclusion criteria. Prominent exclusion criteria involved traumatic arrests, drownings, overdoses, hangings, and patients with do not resuscitate orders. There weren't major differences between the study and the target population. The, there were some differences in pre-hospital intubation rates, so 50% in the vector change arm 
compared to 38% in the standard treatment arm, compared to 42% in the uh, double sequential external defibrillation arm received uh, pre-hospital intubation. Some secondary outcomes, so in addition to that primary outcome of uh, survival to hospital discharge, some secondary outcomes included termination of VFib in the field, uh, return of spontaneous circulation, as well as modified rank and scale for neurologically intact survival. The results were survival rate uh, that was statistically significant for in favor of uh, double sequential external defibrillation and vector changes. Uh, we had 38 patients survive to hospital discharge in the double sequential external defibrillation arm. Only 18% survived to discharge in the standard arm. Of the 31 patients that survived to hospital discharge in the vector change arm, had that number been 30, this the result would not have been significant. There were some limitations, um, the first being the logistics of having uh, uh, two defibrillators, and the study was terminated early due to COVID-19. It didn't reach the desired sample size. So I think we'll start with our first question. The first thing that struck me here, I, th I think we'll talk definitely about the sample size, but I think the first thing that struck me here was survival to hospital discharge being the primary outcome. And, and I struggled to categorize survival to hospital discharge among a disease-oriented outcome versus a patient-oriented outcome, because my thoughts were that a true patient-oriented outcome would have been neurological status at something like 30 days, aka via modified Rankin. What are your thoughts? Uh, uh, we'll start with uh, Peter. Was this, was this the best primary outcome? Would you have chosen the same primary outcome? Um, you may well have. Yeah, I think the primary outcome was okay. There's so much to unpack in this trial, being a three-arm trial. Because I, 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 I did a journal club with the guys from the University of Washington on this. It was a fascinating discussion because, you know, like for oh, 50 years, we've been looking at defibrillation and we haven't really been looking at defibrillation. We've been looking at everything around. We've just assumed that a bit of electricity is the same, whether you um, give it one way or the other or whatever. And we've just sort of attached the, the leads and said, yep, they've had the electricity. But what this study opens the door to is a whole Pandora's box of, you know, how to deliver the electricity, what pathway, what, actually, what it actually does. Is it, is it sort of resetting the heart? Or is it putting the heart into a scramble and, or, or is it sort of aligning the electron? You know, there's, there's all sorts of models you can use as to how to understand how it might make a difference. And so although the study has, it's small, it's underpowered, it's whatever, it at the same time opens up the door to think, well, actually, maybe we should be looking at defibrillation in a lot more detail. And and that's what I found was exciting about this study. And, you know, even the author, he wants to do a bigger and better study, but of course he can't do it. Even within Canada, it's quite mm. tricky. Uh, you know, it would have to be a multi-centre, multinational study. To better. What they did was they picked out the refractory VF. as a, So the question is, even with normal VF, you know, just first up, should we be using this? Should each defibrillator you know, have a different algorithm. You know, there's a thousand questions you could ask. And and this study, all this study really does is opens the door so you can peek in and ask the question. Definitely. I can definitely say that in my practice so far, at sites that don't have eCPR, 
the incorporation of vector change or dual or double sequential external defibrillation hasn't been a routine incorporation in my prolonged arrest patients. And I think now that if if a patient's received three shocks, whether it's in an emergency department or pre-hospital, and it's a prolonged VF arrest, it's it's definitely something that we can change and we can we can apply something to. Would you agree with that, J.K.? Do you think I sh- that should be modified in any way? Yeah, I think it is very interesting in, in how this happens. You do wonder that one of the questions that I have is the patients all started with a standard uh, PET AP lateral three shocks, and, and once they don't respond, then, then you change the vector to AP uh, instead of uh, anterior lateral. So you do wonder if you actually start a patient with just the AP, AP and then if it doesn't work, whether then you change to A lateral or the, the DSED type of uh, methods. But the, the, obviously, the study is not really designed to look into that. They're really just looking into once you fail your anterior lateral shock for three, and then, then you start thinking about changing to vector change. Because if you're doing the same thing again and again for the next six rounds, the chances are that you're not going to get there. So it does because the vector change and the DSED essentially have an additional vector of from the standard uh, defibrillation that happened earlier, uh, which essentially, you know, the, the idea is trying to convert all the signals into one direction. But it looks like just based on this paper, the vector change in the DSED changes that vector altogether after the initial three shocks. And that seems to have a, a better outcome, which makes it quite interesting. For me, for someone who comes in with refractory VF, you throw the kitchen sink at them if they don't respond after the three shocks. You do everything, you do amiodarone, you do drugs, you do shocks. But it looks like, you know, we have to really look into changing that vector to add uh, different directions of the padding uh, positions to actually improve the chance of um, conversion. Mm. I think I took that, I take that as well. The, the, there are a couple of things that were quite interesting in this, which sort of not necessarily evident from the paper. Firstly, I was surprised by the number of people that survive. You know, like by the time I've given three shocks, I'm sort of, you know, ready to have a cup of tea and go away. But actually quite a number of these survived after three shocks. But obviously fourth, fifth, sixth, each time it doesn't work, the survival goes down. So the fourth shock is actually often quite successful. Now, what's interesting in this study was that they were going through the same chaos we were going with the pandemic and so forth. And so they had ramping of their paramedics and delayed response times. So that what was happening is the first responders were often giving the fourth, fifth defibs before they even got there. The fire, the fire trucks. Yeah, because mm. um, that's all they had. So the DSMB said, this is, you're just not going to, like it's actually distorting the outcomes of this trial because what's happening is the ones who are getting the first responder shocks are getting a service shock which will result in a better outcome so that was interesting and the other thing i I asked the author why you know why don't they just make defib with you know you can do it both ways and he said well he's not a physicist but there is an issue with having the capacitors in the same Defibrillator. I mean, presumably there are some smart guy come up with an answer, but at the moment you have to use two defibrillators, which I haven't done in in real life. But it does raise the question of whether you know the manufacturers presumably will come up with fancy ways of changing vectors and so forth within the same defibrillator. And I guess the other point about this is, should we just change to AP pads anyway? But this doesn't necessarily answer that question. So I. 
as I say, there's sort of about 20 or 30 questions I want to answer out of this study. I think that makes three of us not speaking for JK. <laughs> I guess in terms of practice tomorrow, if I had someone who didn't respond, I I would tell them to to try this. Or a prolonged arrest in an emergency department um, yeah. uh, without access to eCPR like we do with the Alfred. And, and by the way, uh, a number of uh, ambulance services around the world have already adopted this even prior to the trial. So it, it's, um, again, not routine in Australia, but um, in, internationally there are some ambulance services already doing it. I think we have to, we can't talk about this trial without addressing the numbers. The I'm looking at figure two, which is a trial participants, the randomization and the outcomes. And I see uh, 18 patients in the standard care survived to discharge um, out of 136 assigned, 31 in the vector change out of 144 assigned, and uh, and 38 in the uh, DSED out of 125 assigned. And I'm just looking at, you know, N equals 18, um, N equals 31. How much does that does that reduce certainty in your eyes? Well, I think there's two things here. One is the total numbers. So, yeah, the total numbers are small, but you could argue the effect size might be so large that that doesn't matter so much. But I think the other side of this is if there was another study that did exactly the same thing with the same results, I would say it was a very high level of certainty, even with those sort of numbers. I mean, you know, if you think about the numbers, it's very hard to, you know, if you're talking about only recruiting people after three VF arrests. Like in, in Melbourne at the moment, VF arrest is the sort of least common cause of cardiac arrest. You know, it's like in the 20s, you know, the percentage of people with VF arrest. It used to be around 50. So there's that, and then there's the, it has to be refractory as well. So recruiting numbers would be hard, but if, there, if it was done again in another setting and came up with the same results, I have a higher level of certainty. A follow-up question to the results is the methods, and it's very difficult to blind anyone with, with these vector changes. But if the termination of resuscitation happened in the emergency department every time, then my thought process is why not blind the the receiving MD or the receiving team? Because I, they, the authors clearly did the best they could to reduce the biases associated with unblinded interventions. But the possibility of a momentum bias in somebody who's already received a lot of interventions, to me, I think it exists. If my colleagues, my 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 pre-hospital colleagues have have administered as an aggressive degree of interventions, I would think that that would not rightfully so, but it would skew my 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 practice slightly, and I would be aggressive as well. What what are your thoughts on that, uh, JKN Professor K- and Peter? It'll be really hard to um, blind them because you come in with either four paths or your positions of AP paths True. where you've got no hair on the anterior chest area unless you sort of wax them intentionally just to um just to show that you're finding them it's, it will be quite challenging i thought yeah. yeah that's fair enough i think you know there's a degree of practicality in the pre-hospital i think the outcome measurements are quite important you know measuring you know say disability and stuff or or even assessing survival and so forth should be done by people that are agnostic to the to the intervention but I think there are real dangers in overcomplicating, uh, especially a pre-hospital or even an emergency trial. And 
although as you said, there is the possibility of or bias in terms of the degree of a you know engagement but as i say you know i'm a bit of a nihilist and uh if i think it's not going well you know i might sort of give up too quickly and, and so i think there is a you know and, and i think emergency people in general are a bit that way and so i think there there are dangers but at the same time you've got to be practical and pragmatic because here we have the best evidence that we have pointing in a specific way and 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 we either incorporate that into our decision making or not i guess and i think we all seem to to fall along the we would kind of, we would incorporate this evidence into our decision making i had another uh, follow up question on methods no imputation was made for any missing data and i started thinking about whether whether there should have been imputation for data missing even if it was presumed to be at random so if there was data that that was not collected for whatever reason do we just do we ignore it or do we do we try to make an imputation for it so if you do an intention to treat trial mm. and intention to treat analysis you include all the patients and the primary outcome in that analysis and there's no need to impute because once so they once they're randomized they're either dead or alive or whatever uh and that's it but unless there's some systematic problem with the randomization which can happen from time to time so I'm not a big believer in adjusting after randomization unless there mm. appears to be some major issue. What people mostly do is a sensitivity analysis to see whether if you assumed everyone was black or white then then that would make a difference to the outcome. So that style of analysis is is I think useful to do and gives the reader some insight into what would happen if you assumed every everything went one way or the other in terms of the intervention i think doing an analysis around the treatment actually delivered is quite important so i think doing those three things gives a, the reader a sort of a bit of a feeling for how certain you can be about the published intention to treat result and so that's one of the beauties of randomization here is that it accounts for both differences in the population arm as well as uh, differences in missing data at times jk you have a special interest in electrophysiology you haven't left us you're still an emergency consultant with us do you have any any specific takes on vector changes and and why a vector change or or double sequential external defibrillation might make intuitive sense to you it's very interesting i mean electrophysiology really uh has started a long time ago but only really in the last 20 years there's been lots and lots of new developments and understanding and techniques of how to treat the heart and 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 all the names that you can read in electrophysiology they are still alive much very very much itself so in terms of this one one of the other question that that actually raised to me was the double sequential defibrillation actually it's almost like a double stack shock on the, within one seconds of each other it does sort of raise from the questions because there has been a few trials in the past talking about stack shocks or triple stack shocks and then and then i think the american heart association and then came out there with the guidelines saying that we we don't need that because it's not a huge difference and sort of uh, go back to a single shock it does sort of raise a question whether a, a sort of a vector change with stack shock might actually be even more efficient and and that that would be what i'm thinking of cuz uh, from all our understandings about how to reset that uh, depolarization wave in one direction but now if we're doing in a in a vector change and then we do it in a in a stacked method 
whether it might actually make a difference. And I think that will be quite interesting to, to figure out in the future research too. Because that, that business around the stack shocks was about reducing impedance. That was the theory. But but this is more about changing the direction uh, mm. of the, uh, of the uh, current flow, which is a very different concept. Yes. Yes, uh, like because the DSED section, you know, imagine that you have an AP uh, anterior lateral and an anterior posterior, you know, summations of that vector will be very different from the AP pad itself. So, so that that is actually, uh, you know, instead of think, thinking that DSED as a dual sequential shock and thinking as either a complete different vector compared to the uh, AP vector as well. So I thought, I, I just, I, I don't know whether, you know, the arch of the electrical circuit that we use to shock the patient which direction is actually going to be the most ideal. Thank you guys for your thoughts. I think we've had two good manuscripts here with practice changing or affirming conclusions. Uh, to me, I look forward to incorporating this evidence into my practice. Thanks, guys. No worries. Thanks, man. Thanks a lot. All right. See you guys. Bye. Enjoy your days. Bye.